Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Loving and gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Being guided by compassion. Today's passage is the well-known story of the Good Samaritan. This story is so easily recognized that the phrase Good Samaritan is commonly used in our everyday language. It's used to identify people who just simply do nice things for others. It's the name of hospitals and healthcare facilities. It's also used as a label for certain types of laws that protect those who try to help others in need. If you come across a person who you think is in danger and you decide to help them, you can rely on Good Samaritan laws to help protect you from lawsuits if your efforts don't come out as well as you had planned. A Good Samaritan is generally thought of as a kind person who comes to the aid of another in need. But there is actually more to the story than simply doing kind things. Today's passage starts with a lawyer, or a scribe, who challenges Jesus. Jesus had been discussing the events that had transpired when 72 disciples that he had sent off in pairs had returned from their journey. They were sent in pairs to the towns and villages that Jesus was planning to visit as he made his final journey towards Jerusalem. And they returned with dramatic stories of success, including healings and deeds of great power. So Jesus told them not to rejoice in the power that they had over demons but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He also told, took them aside and privately said to them, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you heard, but did not hear it. It's at this point that the lawyer speaks up, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The passage says the lawyer was testing or confronting Jesus, but it doesn't really say why. Was the lawyer jealous? Jesus had just told his disciples to return from their trip that their names were written in heaven. Perhaps the lawyer wants to know how to get his name written in heaven. After all, as a, an expert of Jewish law and a privileged member of that society, he was probably accustomed to presuming that he was at the forefront of the righteous few who were expecting to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Instead of accepting the lawyer's challenge, Jesus redirects the test back to the lawyer. As the legal expert on hand, he should be able to have the answer himself. So Jesus asked him, what is written in the law and what do you read there? Notice these are two different questions. What has been written by others and how do you read it? The lawyer replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You may recall in a different part of a different gospel. Jesus was asked the same question in a different situation. In chapter 22 of the Gospel of Matthew, 
And this is essentially the same answer that Jesus gave when he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus' answer more accurately clarifies that the lawyer's statement in Luke is actually made up of two commandments, not one. One from Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5, and one from Leviticus, chapter 19, verse 18. And of course, he agrees with the answer given by the lawyer in Luke. That is what he said in, in Matthew. Jesus apparently considered the case closed, and in today's passage from Luke, but the lawyer said that he won't let it go. He can't let it go. It can't be that simple. Or how could he have been so easily dismissed by Jesus? So he asked Jesus another question. Who's my neighbor? This is when Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Jews in the first century would have considered such a phrase an oxymoron. How could a Samaritan be good? People who lived in Samaria in the first century were looked down upon by the Jews, who they considered unclean. Many centuries earlier, the region of Samaria was part of the northern kingdom of Israel. But in 722 BCE, the northern kingdom was conquered by an Assyrian empire, and the Israelites who lived there were sent away in exile. In order to prevent the Israelites from regaining strength in that region, the Assyrians forced people from other conquered nations to move into that land, which caused mixed marriages and tenuous bonds with the other Jews in that community. And then a few centuries later, in 538 BCE, when the Jews started to return from their exile and rebuild the temple, there were conflicts between the Jews and the Samaritans who were there. The tactic employed by the Assyrians proved effective since it created discord among the people for many centuries in the future. So Jews considered the Samaritans unclean, and it was pretty safe to assume that a Samaritan would not lend a helping hand knowingly to a Jew. So in the story, it would have been shocking to hear of a Samaritan who had decided to help a man who might be a Jew. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, so let's go back to the beginning of the story. A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and then took off, leaving him half dead. Now, as you see on this, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a long, windy road through a hilly region. As you can see from this picture from Pastor John and Sylvia, who were there on a previous visit to Israel, there were many blind corners, and the various people could hide carefully and select their unfortunate victims at their will. The high rate of robbery on this particular road made the scene very plausible in this story. So the listeners could easily relate to the situation that Jesus depicted. So by chance in the story, there was a priest who happened to be traveling down the same road when he saw the robbery victim. Unwilling to get involved, 
The priest passed by on the other side of the road and continued on his way. Likewise, a Levite. He came along and chose also to pass on the opposite side of the road rather than assist the victim. Since they were going down the road, they were likely going from Jerusalem, which is at a higher elevation, towards Jericho. And they were probably returning from some period of service in the temple, the priest and Levi. But there's no reason given for the, them passing by the victim, which leaves really the story open to interpretation and speculation. Some have suggested that the religious elite were trying to avoid the hassle of cleanliness rituals that would have been required if they came in contact with the victim and found that he was dead. But Jewish tradition would have made it an even greater imperative to get involved if they thought that the man was dead, since it would be considered a great sin not to bury a dead body which they had discovered on the road. Perhaps they were eager to get home to friends and family after a long time away of service. Or maybe they were afraid for their own safety after seeing firsthand how dangerous this road really was. Maybe they were thinking, I'm sure someone else will be right behind me and they'll be able to take care of this poor guy. Of course, we don't know for certain the reasons for not getting involved, but it gives us an opportunity to reflect on our own reasons for passing by the opportunity to lend a hand to others in need as we pass them by. The reasons that we find plausible for the priests and the Levites to pass by on the far side of the road could easily be the same reasons that we might have used to rationalize our own neglect in certain moments in our life. Well, fortunately for our victim, there is someone who comes along later who is willing to get involved, our good Samaritan. The Samaritan sees a person in need, and he springs into action. As mentioned earlier, a Samaritan was not expected to assist a Jew, and although the victim may have been presumed to be a Jew, we don't know if he was or he wasn't. Actually, the victim in this story is the only character that's described without any social status. He's just called a man, or a certain man. He's been robbed and stripped, so there's nothing left which can give him any social identity. But isn't this representative of life in general? I mean, in those moments when we're in our greatest need, in our darkest hour, social status, material wealth, race, gender, all the ways that we compare and categorize each other don't matter. It is only that one insurmountable need that ranks highest on our list of concerns that we think about. And in the case of the Samaritan, who expresses compassion for the victim, he is on the same page. The Samaritan doesn't ask the victim where he's from or search for any defining or identifying traits. Guided only by compassion, he simply sees someone who has a great need. The Samaritan started off by offering first aid. He treated the, the wounds with oil and a salve, as a salve, and with wine as an antiseptic. Then he bandaged him and carried him on to the inn, giving up the comfort 
of riding his donkey so that the victim could be transported to a place of rest. And when they arrived at the inn, he stayed with the injured man and cared for him, cared for him overnight. The next morning, the Samaritan gave the innkeeper two denarii, which was equivalent to about two days' pay. And he told them that he would return and pay for any future expenses that the innkeeper incurred while taking care of the injured man. The Samaritan was very generous to this injured man, yet it was done in a balanced way. I mean, he got the victim to a place of safety and stayed with him just one day, supplying the resources needed to get that help in the man healthy enough to be self-sufficient. And then the Samaritan continued on his own journey. I think it's also important to note that all of this was done without any expectation or even possibility of reimbursement in any way. If the man recovered before the Samaritan got back, they may never again meet, and the Samaritan may not give even so much as a thank you from the injured man. He must have anticipated that, but the Samaritan, guided by compassion, was guided by compassion rather than compensation. Such a deep level of compassion can be life-changing to the recipient. To know that you have been cared for by someone who you've never met, and to realize that you will never be able to repay that person is both moving and humbling. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you ever had a, a teacher maybe undertake, take you under their wing and give you special attention? Or have you ever been given a, a break when you know you didn't deserve it, but should have probably been penalized for something? Or have you ever been given some unique opportunity in life through the kindness of someone who saw a potential in you? The people who do these things or have done these things for us without seeking recognition or reward are the neighbors in our lives, according to Jesus. Through this story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus taught the lawyer what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he told him to go and do likewise. But the lesson really doesn't end here. The real lesson continues in the gospel story that shows how Jesus demonstrated his own compassion for all humanity through his crucifixion and resurrection. By dying on the cross and being resurrected, we are offered the salve of his presence, his eternal presence, and our wounds are cleansed by his blood. He didn't do this with an assumption that we would one day pay back. There's no way anyone could ever pay Christ back for offering to save us from death through his own experience of death. The salvation that we receive through the grace offered by Christ was born solely out of compassion. Jesus completely loved God, and he loved us as himself. Rather than following strict religious doctrine that would have guaranteed his name would be written in heaven as the lawyer seemed to be concerned about, Jesus loved totally and completely as God. That was his guide. And that is what he has instructed us to do as well. 
So I encourage you today to reflect on your own motivations in all that you do and be guided by that same love and compassion that Christ has shown for us. This is how we will experience heaven in this age and in the age to come. Amen.